ladies. So we're, as you know, we're in 2 Corinthians 7. And it's a very emotional chapter. We hear words and read words like joy and sorrow and grief and boldness and comfort and um, pride and downcast and mourning and longing and zeal. We hear so many emotional words in this chapter. And so we're going to talk about this kind of emotionally. Um, I was not originally scheduled to do this week. I was originally scheduled to do next week, and Kathleen and I flip-flopped. And when I read the chapter, I was like, okay, Kathleen, rude. You know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know. Yes, I know. Yes, it's kind of like it took me a minute to get my teeth into this chapter. But as God would have it, it's exactly where I was supposed to be this week and um, in this study, and I hope and pray that it's exactly what you need right now also. It has been an emotional week at the Bryant House. I think it's just normal life. There's not a lot that we're dealing with that, that you guys are not dealing with, but I happen to just be a frazzled mama right now who has a baby who keep, continues to have chronic ear infections and not sleep, and my husband travels, and I've got four little ones, and at the end of last week, we got a diagnosis for our seven-year-old that he has celiac disease, which is um, a pretty life-changing thing. It's very manageable, and we're very thankful to have a diagnosis, but we're still a little bit kind of trying to figure this out and figure life out and how we can protect him. So it's been a high emotion week for me as a mother, and I found such solace and such comfort in this chapter and in Paul's humanity and in Paul's emotions. You know, some writer that I read said this was his most emotional, his most personal, his most vulnerable and human writing that he ever did was this chapter we're going to study today. And I personally just found it very wrecking and very encouraging. And I hope that the same thing is true for you today. So we're going to try and hop into Paul's shoes and just see this this chapter from his perspective. So stepping into his shoes, we'll remember that he's a minister and a father figure to the Corinthians. So he feels an adoration for them, much like a father would feel for their child. He feels a responsibility for them, much like a father would feel for their child. He also knows that there's many false teachers who are trying to pull them away from him, who are also slandering his name, slandering what he teaches. And it's painful. It's a painful thing for him to have to go through. I'm sure that we can all relate to that in here, that if we've ever been slandered or misunderstood and how painful that is, especially when it relates to someone who you really love and you're worried that that person who you really love might change their relationship with you. So it's very painful for him. Um, We know from historical study that there was a letter written in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And that letter is referred to in 2 Corinthians 4, a couple places in 2 Corinthians 2, sorry, um, verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So we know that Paul has written this letter super emotional out of much affliction, out of much anguish of heart, with many tears. And that letter is lost. We don't know where it is, but we do know that it was hard. It was probably something that many of us would not know if we should say or not, maybe never say. 
It was something that he was toiling over. So in that context, we meet him here in chapter 7. He has sent this letter. In that day, mail was very weird. I, I did a little bit of research on it, and it said that basically mail, if you, unless you were royalty or very, very wealthy, your mail was just going to be delivered by the random Joe who was heading the way your mail needed to go. So it would be like, hey, dude on a horse, you going to Jericho? Great, I got a letter, you know? And he'd be like, okay, I'll take it. And you just had to be like, thanks, dude on a horse, you know, and trust that it was going to happen. And so the letter was carried that way. It would have been taken many months to get there, probably many months for it to be received, or many months to have it returned, which we didn't have a return letter. Um, But can you imagine the anguish of pouring your heart out to someone in anguish, affliction, and tears, as Paul said, and then just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. This is not something that we can relate to really at all in our culture. We're so stressed out if we don't receive a text back by the end of the day, you know, and it's totally different what he was going through. He has regret. He waffles back and forth. Should I have said that? Did I say the right thing? Is it, is it, are they going to receive it in love? Is this the end of our relationship? How is it going to be received? So much anxiety. So the plan was the letter was sent, and then Titus was going to go visit the Corinthians, get the report on the letter, and then Titus and Paul would meet back in Macedonia, and Titus would bring word of how they responded to this letter. But when Paul reaches Macedonia, Titus has not come. So we see in verse 5, we'll read it real quick, how Paul feels about this. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. You can only imagine the anxiety he already had from the waiting And then he thinks, okay, the time for the trip has finally come. I'm headed to Macedonia. I'm going to end this. I'm going to just know, do they hate me or do they love me? Do they hate Christ or do they love him? And he gets there and Titus is not there. And I don't know about you, but I know my mind would have gone a million places, and I'm sure that Paul's did too, you know. He's thinking, has he been Has he been murdered? Has he been hurt? Has he been robbed? Has he been shipwrecked? Has he abandoned me? Is he, has he believed the bad press and this is over? Is the whole relationship over? Is the ministry over? And you see that Paul literally is afflicted in his body and his spirit. When it says he can't, he had no rest, it means he literally had no rest. And I'm looking at a lot of you guys today and I know that we've spoken and I know that many of you are sleep deprived too. Girl, I feel you. Mm. I know, preach it. Um, So he's saying, I've had no rest, and every turn I'm afflicted. Every turn. Have you ever felt like that? Where it's like, I mean, every time I turn around, there's just another shoe dropping. Maybe it's small, maybe it's large, maybe it's a mixture of everything, but you just feel that. You feel the affliction at every turn. And he says, there was fighting without And there was fear within. That phrase has stuck with me as I studied this. I relate to that. I relate to what he's saying when it's just you feel on edge. And you're saying it feels like there's fighting without. And there's fear within. And there's fighting without. And there's fear within. And you almost feel the cycle. The cycle going on. Fighting without. Fear within. Fighting without. Fear within. 
And then the most wonderful thing happens. I totally forgot I had a PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> but God, the cycle is broken. But God. Verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. And this is totally a turning point in his emotions in this chapter. But God. God comforts in three ways. We see it here right in the chapter. And as I studied, I couldn't find any other ways that he comforts in the Bible. These three ways alone. God himself. Look at the verse. But God, who comforts the downcast. God himself comforts us. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. God comforts us through people. That's a sweet thing. It's important that we comfort each other. It's important that we also allow ourselves to be the comforted. And God comforts us through truth. When Titus came, he brought them the truth of the situation. He said, it's not all lost. They repented. They have longing for us. They have longing for Christ. And the truth comforted him. In my, I don't know about you, but it's the middle of the nights that get me, because I'm up anyway. Um, And the middle of the nights get me, and I start, my mind just starts going crazy. And this particular weekend, I just started thinking about, you know, the, the news that we had recently received at our house. And I started thinking about, okay, the weight of this child, this seven-year-old's health, rests on my shoulders. Every meal and every snack and everything that he has to have for the rest of his life until he's an adult is on my shoulders. And that was very overwhelming to me. And every, every bit of his health has to be protected through food. And my mind just starts going, what is he going to do? when he wants to go on the fourth and fifth grade retreat? And what is he going to do when we eat out? And what is he going to, you know, your mind just goes berserk. And all of a sudden in the morning, I'm just exhausted. But as God would have it, this, have me in this spot, and hopefully you too, in the middle of the night, when my mind's going nuts, he would remind me, but God, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted me. And he has comforted me, with himself, with others, and with his truth. And it would stop the cycle every time. When I could say, thank you, comforter. Thank you, my God. Thank you that the truth is you care for this child way more than I ever could. And you created him this way. And you made me his mom. You have done this. And that is the truth. And the cycle is broken. The fighting without and the fear within gets reined in under the heading and under the care and under the wing of that comforter who comforts the downcast. The next big emotion we see from Paul is grief. And we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about that. We see that that word a lot in the upcoming verses in 8 through 11. I'll just read it quickly. For even if, we made you, if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And I will stop there. 
So the word for grief means sorrow or regret. It does not mean the word we use in our culture for when you grieve losing a loved one. It means sorrow, regret, sadness. And it can be over sin, it can be over hurts, it can be just generally any sorrow or regret you have. So Paul identifies these two kinds of grief, worldly grief and godly grief. And we're going to go through both of those. So here we go. Worldly grief and godly grief. We're just going to quickly list characteristics of both. It's all from this passage. Worldly grief produces death. Now, it produces death in the way that if this is the only kind of grief that you ever have and there's no repentance, it produces spiritual death. It also produces death because believers can feel this too. It also produces death in the fact that it's just a dead-end road. There's no life that comes from it. There's no relief in worldly grief. It leaves us striving It makes us feel insecure and anxious. You saw all these things in Paul when he was feeling that way when he got to Macedonia and Titus wasn't there. The object of the grief is often self, especially in relation to sin. If you're grieving over a sin or grieving over a past thing, um, you're really grieving because your own pride was hurt and you're embarrassed in the way it made you feel about yourself. This can be felt by both believers and non-believers. And it is unnecessary. That doesn't minimize it. We're all going to feel it. In fact, we probably all feel that we're probably more used to feeling this than we really are godly grief. So it doesn't minimize it, but it it is unnecessary, which Paul learned also. Moving over to godly grief, this one has a lot more um, points, so the writing's really small, but hopefully you can see it. It produces repentance. It suffers no loss. And that is straight from um, verse 9, where he says, For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. It took me a minute to figure that out because I'm thinking, well, you're grieving something. It seems like you would feel loss about that. But what he's saying is really the loss you feel the grief, the sorrow that you're having is producing gain. So in the end, at the bottom line, there's no, there's no loss suffered. There's no, nothing lost. The thing that you grieved is really your gain. You gain repentance in life. It leads to salvation. This can literally mean saving faith, saving salvation. It can also mean deliverance and repentance, like deliverance from something that's really bothering you, like I felt in the night, you know, deliverance from that cycle. It produces an earnestness for righteousness. It makes us feel secure. The object is God, especially, again, in relation to sin. So if we sin, we're grieved in this kind of godly grief because we've hurt God's name. This is felt by only believers. It's necessary. And it ends in joy. So we see Paul go through both in this chapter. We see him with the worldly grief that draws him into that godly grief and ends in joy. The test, are y'all still writing? Okay, sorry. (laughs) Um, The test of our regret and our grief and our sorrow is where does it lead? We ask ourselves, where does it lead? Are we experiencing worldly grief or godly grief? Ask yourself, where does it lead? Am I leading, is it leading to death? 
to this cycle of fighting without fear within? Is it leading to striving or is it leading to life, to joy, to an earnestness for righteousness, to security? Is it leading us to God? So you can test by asking that question. Our places, and I'm, um, this is just few last few things, we're almost done, but our places of worldly sorrows, the, side, the left side, are also our places of insecurity. If you really think that through and really let it sink in, our places of worldly sorrow and regret are our places of insecurity and often anxiety. Examples of that are past sins that we're still upset about or we're still killing ourselves over or hurtful words that someone said to you so long ago that just roll over in your mind. Maybe somebody said, I'll just make it a really surface example, but maybe somebody said, you know, you really look better as a blonde. And so then the rest of your life you feel like, I just don't look good as a brunette, you know? <laughs> um, but it's a, it becomes a place of anxiety or an insecurity. Hurtful situations or unmet longings. All these, these things, the worldly griefs we have, are our insecurities. So what do we do? We go back to God, the comforter, and he comforts us with himself, with his people, and with his truth. And we turn our back on that worldly grief and crawl up in the lap of that comforter and let him walk us through godly grief. I can tell you it's going to be a lot messier it is much easier to feel worldly grief. It is much easier for us to keep the control on our hands. When we go to godly grief, we let it go. We relinquish it. And we say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Our places of godly sorrow are our places of security. It is good. It is helpful. It is necessary that we go through godly grief and godly sorrow. We are so determined in this world to circumvent pain. But it's not the principle that God put anywhere. In fact, can anyone tell me a story in this book that is not painful? That is not messy? Even Christ, his own son, who never added to the mess by his own sin, had a messy story. Ending in a messy death and a botched trial. There are no examples, no examples of a life that's not messy, redeemed by God. Even in his creation, we see just things like lifting weights, the way God designed our body. When we want to become stronger in our muscle, that muscle has to be torn and then be rebuilt. When a tree needs to grow, God really uses the wind and how it makes the top of that tree sway And when that tree starts to sway at the top, the roots of the tree signal to go deeper, to widen their base. It's everywhere. We cannot circumvent the pain. But we can say, but God, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us. So in closing, as we fumble and bumble through this thing called life, Let's join Paul, as we see in his humanity of this chapter, in anchoring ourselves in God as that person who is our comforter, in anchoring ourselves in God's truth, 
I keep beside my bed, this is how desperate I am, (laughs) I keep beside my bed a key ring of Bible verses that I can reach from my bed and remind myself of truth and stop the cycle. Let's remember that God knows we're dust, that he created us, that these emotions we feel are part of us, men and women. We see it in us and Paul all over. And that he uses these very emotions to draw us to himself. That we feel like we're a basket case, and guess what? There's someone who holds that basket case, and you're fine. And it's designed that way. So as we finish, I just wanted us to sing this hymn together that um, has been rolling around in my head as we've done this. It's Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I'll just let you read the the words first to yourself, and then we'll just close in singing. And it's not meant to be stressful for anybody to have to sing. You don't have to sing if you don't want to. Um, We've had major issues with technology all morning long. Well, the words are, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So if you know it. You just close your eyes if you want to, or close your eyes if you don't know it, and you just want to listen. And let's just join singing that and turn our back on worldly grief and on striving and turn our faces to our comforter. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Pray with me. Father, our eyes are on you. Where else would we go? We turn our eyes and our hearts to you, and we turn our backs on all the other things we choose as substitute comforts. We don't know where to go but you, God. And you are the only answer and the only one who holds us. And you are our comforter. Lord, let fear within or fighting without not stop us from running to you, Father. Let us climb up into your lap today and say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you, Jesus. And you are in control of this, and you are good. Increase our faith, Lord. Thank you so much for the beautiful women in this room. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.